little boy. Little boy. Um, that is a young man named Adi Murphy. And uh, when Japan hit Pearl Harbor, Adi felt the need to join the military, but he couldn't because he was too young. It wouldn't let him in. Uh, so he got his sister to lie about his age. She signed an affidavit saying he was older than he was. And, uh, then they considered him too small. He only weighed 110 pounds. But eventually they let him in. And he went on uh, to serve in World War II. And uh, at the end of his career, this is him. See all those medals on his chest. He is the most decorated soldier in American history, um, including the Congressional Medal of Honor. You can see around his neck. Um, what made him such a good soldier? I mean, you, you look at him, you look at the guy on the left, Got a little baby face. He's a little guy. And yet, he had a fighting spirit that was unmatched. According to him, what made the difference for him was simply his desire to please his commanding officers. That what his commanding officer said to do, he was going to do it. And he was going to do it to the best of his ability. He was going to do it without question. And he was going to do it well. That was what drove him, he said. As Christians, we have a commanding officer. And if we, as believers, ever got it in our head that our desire should be to please our commanding officer, imagine what the church could do. Imagine what we could do. But how do we know what our commanding officer has said? Well, he has revealed that to us in his scriptures. Today, as we move into or continue on in our study of doctrinal issues, we want to take a look at kind of the core for all of our beliefs, everything we're going to say, and that is scriptures themselves. What do the scriptures say? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here Paul is again giving instructions to Timothy. This is we saw last week. He is trying to guide Timothy as a pastor, as a leader, to equip him with the tools that he needs to be able to carry out his ministry. To effectively prepare and equip believers. And in the midst of this, in chapter 3, Paul starts to make a contrast. A contrast between authentic believers and inauthentic believers. And one of the components of the authentic believer, Paul says, is the person who has acquainted themselves, informed themselves with the sacred scriptures. 
beginning in verse 12. It says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says several important things about Scripture today that we want to look at, we want to examine, and we want to begin to apply to our lives and to our mind and to our thought, to uh, our belief system as we uh, move into uh, deeper matters of discussion such as the Trinity, such as the nature of each person of the Trinity, second coming, creation, and so many other things that we're going to be dealing with over the next several weeks. If we haven't settled the matter of Scripture first and its importance and its centrality, then those other things will simply be what? They'll be my opinion. And as a pastor, as a preacher, I never want my messages to be primarily my opinion. I want them to be built on the Word. Why is that important? Paul gives us that answer here in this passage. The first thing he tells us is that the Bible is the source for hearing the voice of God. It is the place we go to when we want to hear the God's voice, when we want to understand what God is saying to us, when we want to understand where we should go and what we should do and how we should do it. As I mentioned, Paul here is, is contrasting two types of people, those who, who follow Christ and those who pretend to follow Christ. And he admits that it is, it's difficult to, write, to walk the right path. And those who, who claim to follow Christ, uh, they will, in, in Paul's day, in Paul's setting, they will certainly face persecution. It was a given. Because to claim the name of Christ and to say that Jesus is Lord was to put yourself directly at odds with the demand of Caesar that he be declared Lord. And so to make that proclamation was to set yourself up in a difficult situation, uh, even a, a situation that would oftentimes lead to death. And Paul reveals that those who are imposters will, will reveal themselves by their failure to hold to the word and by the, the fact that that they will um, surrender their beliefs, walk away from their beliefs ultimately in the face of hardship. Now, in our setting, in our culture, here in America especially, we don't face the hardship that they face when it comes to being a believer. We don't have to hide our journey to church. We don't have to hide our faith. We wear T-shirts and hats and 
necklaces and all sorts of other things that say, I'm a Christian, and we can proclaim it without fear of reprisal. And because of that, sometimes it's even more difficult to distinguish the imposter from the real believer. And I don't intend this morning, and I never intend this morning, to position myself as the arbiter of who is and who isn't authentic. Again, that comes down to the Word. And I would simply say that the primary means of distinguishing the two is simply who is building their world around the Word and who's building the world around themselves. Now, when I say that the Bible is the source for hearing the voice of God, I'm, I'm not saying that it's the only communication God has with people. I believe in general revelation. That is that within creation itself, God reveals who He is and what He desires. He has built the world with certain realities in place. The laws of science reflect some of this. The issue of wisdom reflects some of this. But what I am saying is that the Word of God, the, the way God communicates to us, must primarily come through His Word, through His written Scripture. And it has to do that two ways. Number one, it has to be first in expression. It's where we go to first to discover the truths of who God is. It is His revelation of Himself, of His desires, of His outlook, His perspective, His attitude, His commitments to the world. And secondly, it is first in importance. All other means, all other means of, quote, hearing from God, whatever they may be, however you view that particular issue, must be evaluated and measured by His written Word. And if they don't match, then whatever it is you think you heard, you didn't hear from God. You heard from some other source. Whether it be your own desires, or Satan, or society, or whatever it is, God's Word takes primacy. Now as a Baptist, one of our statements that goes back to our very beginnings is the statement, no creed but the Bible. And I firmly believe that. Now that doesn't mean that we can't hold to statements of faith. That doesn't mean that we as a church or as a body can't come together and say, this kind of expresses what we believe about the Bible. But what it means is that ultimately all of those statements of faith, all of those expressions, number one, have to what? They have to be judged continually and constantly by the Word itself. And it also means that when it comes to the issue of church discipline or something to that effect, if you, if you have to go in that direction, that it's not our creed, it's not our statement of faith that should be used as a criteria for evaluating whether or not somebody belongs. It has to be the Word of God. It has to go back to what he has said. Now the obvious question that arises out of that is, 
how do we interpret it? Because you're liable to run into and encounter all sorts of people who are going to argue for different interpretations of Scripture. And I just have to say, um, being on social media and stuff, there are some very, very crazy approaches to interpreting Scripture out there. Some people that are doing things with Scripture that it's sickening. It makes my stomach hurt when I see it. There is a right way and a wrong way to interpret Scripture. So what are some of those, those rules, if you will? Well, I think the first thing is we need to realize that there are two voices in every text. There is the human voices writer and God's voice. They're both there. To ignore either is to slip into um, a position, uh, a, a, a take on the issue that um, robs really God's sovereignty in, in how he designed revelation, inspiration, and so forth uh, of its importance. God chose the writers he chose, Old Testament and New Testament, because they were in a position, they were in a place, they were at a time and in a context that would best express what he wanted his word to say, not just for that time, but on into the future. It's not an accident that Moses or David or Hosea or Matthew or Mark or Paul or any of these wrote the books that they wrote. They wrote them because of who they were where they were, their worldview, their training, their outlook, their experiences were all part of what God wanted to use to reveal who he is, and we need to acknowledge that. But we also need to acknowledge that it's not just them. It's not just Matthew's opinion of who Jesus is. It's not just Paul's opinion of how things should be done. It is a Holy Spirit, as Paul writes here, a God-breathed endeavor. And so as we interpret, we, we have to have really two, two tools at our disposal. One is, I don't really like to call him this, but the Holy Spirit is necessary for interpretation. He is absolutely necessary to get it right. That means we need to be bathing our Bible study in prayer. That means we need to be sensitive to how God may be leading, how God may be directing the things that God may be showing us as we interact. But we also what? We also have certain rules where we step into the world of the writers, the audience that they're speaking to the people they're interacting with, the experiences they're experiencing. And we bring those two realities together. Those two voices always work together. They're not in opposition to each other. They're not opposed to each other. The attempt that some have made over the years to put pit Paul against Jesus, for instance, is ridiculous. For the the very reason that the Holy Spirit is at work in both the text. 
and he binds the two together. Second thing we need to realize after the two voices is that the text was written for a specific purpose. It was not written directly to us. When Paul sat down to write, Matthew sat down to write, Moses sat down to write, they did not know, they probably couldn't imagine that somebody in 2023 would be reading what they wrote. And that factors into how we arrive at the meaning. The meaning has to be something that they would have been willing to share, able to share, capable of sharing. The text is not some magic eight ball. We've all seen those people who, God, show me something, show me something, you know, and they're, they're pointing. Oh, look. One of my favorite stories is the guy trying that. And he opens up his word, God, show me, God, show me, points to it. And Judas went and hanged himself. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That can't be right. Let me, let me try that again. I, I must have been off. So he turns the page and so forth. He points to it. The text says, Jesus said, go and do likewise. You know, that's not how Scripture is supposed to be used. Every text does not necessarily apply to every situation. It has its limits. And we need to realize that sometimes the application is in the principle, not in the practice. In other words, it's the text is trying to teach us or tell us who God is. What is his nature? What is his character? And we apply that to our lives without necessarily applying the practice that comes with it. We see that with some of the Old Testament laws. Leviticus 19 telling us not to wear um, clothing made of two different types of fabric. Whoops. <laughs> okay. Why does it say that? It says that because in the context when Moses wrote that law, when God gave that law, in that context, people blended together, sewed together two different types of fac- uh, fabric as a ritual of fertility. And by sewing the two types together and then putting the garment on usually the, the, the bride, they were, quote, ensuring that many children would be born to that family. And God is simply saying there, I don't want my people practicing such superstitious and magic acts. I want them to rely on me. I want them to trust in me. I want my people to reveal to the world that fertility or or whatever comes their way, comes their way because I am a gracious and wonderful God, not one that can be manipulated by magic blacks. So today, as we live our lives, we read that text. We don't have to worry about the practice. We can wear mixed clothing in terms of the fabric that's made white because we don't mix our clothing today for that reason. We do it so it's not wrinkled. It doesn't wrinkle. Which I greatly appreciate. 
But the, the passage still applies to us in the things we pursue. We don't visit horoscopes. And we don't go through little magical rituals here in church to ensure that God is pleased with us. We understand that God is gracious and we go to Him simply in prayer. So the passage has application, but it may not be application in practice. And the third, we need to realize that it was, it was written a certain way. And by that, simply what I mean is this. Every text is a type of literature. It's a, it's a genre, if you want to use the English term. And you don't interpret a poetic text the way you do a literal historical narrative. You don't interpret a legal code the, the way you do a, a sermonic prose. Every text has its way of expressing things and we need to ask how is what are the rules for this type of text what are the rules for poetry what are the rules for historical narrative and as we hold those three realizations together we can begin to to put together an understanding of the text that's consistent with God's intended purpose and meaning for that text and the original author's intended meaning of that text. And as we apply it, then we come to understand it, and we do see it as the source that it is. The second thing that Paul reveals to us here is that the Bible is the standard for understanding the heart of God. Verse 15, he says, You know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation. That's God's heart. That's God's desire to save humanity. D.L. Moody, I quote him this week since I quoted him unfavorably last week. I'll quote him favorably this week. How's that? D.L. Moody said the scriptures were not given for our information, but for our transformation. And we need to keep that in mind. The message of scripture is salvation. It's the plan for salvation in eternity. Scripture tells us repeatedly that before even the foundation of the earth, before creation happened, God had a plan for salvation in place. Scripture tells us of the need for salvation in the fall. That the reason we're in the status we're in, the reason we're in the circumstances we're in, is because we have chosen to turn away from God's plan and God's purpose and God's provision. And we have said we can do it better. And as a result, we stand in judgment and in need of salvation. Scripture tells us that the, the path of salvation is found in the story of God's people. Scholars call it salvation history. It's the story of, of how God has moved 
through humanity, through Israel, through the church, to reveal who He is, to reveal His desires, to reveal His relationship with humanity and how that works and how that might be built upon. Scripture tells us that the perfection of salvation is in Jesus Christ. He perfected that salvation history. He brought it all together to its necessary and appropriate end. He is the focus. He is the center. He is the heartbeat of Scripture and His mission to draw humanity to Himself is revealed in Scripture. Scripture tells us that the appropriation of salvation is by the believer. That as God has reached out, as God, as God has planned, as God has worked, as God has moved over history, and as God has come Himself in the person of Jesus and lived among us and died and was raised again and ascended unto heaven, that we have the necessity to respond to what God has done. There is no knowledge of Christ and His salvation apart from Scripture. It is the proclamation. And it is everything we need to know. It is the standard for evaluating how we are saved. Not councils, not popes, not presidents of Southern Baptist conventions or executive committees of Southern Baptist conventions. None of those determine the nature of salvation in a place of salvation. God's Word does. And His written Word aligns with incarnate word in the person of Jesus. And then Paul tells us that the Bible is the instrument for discovering the mind of God. The second part of verse 16 says it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And it's interesting when you look at those verbs that they, they break down into, into two groups. One group, the first group, talks about feeding our minds. The teaching and the training are expressions of, of doctrine and moral teaching. The word for teaching reflects upon the doctrine, the, the right ways to think about God, the right ways to think about who He is and how He's revealed Himself. The training has to do with moral expressions and, and understanding the right ways to do things and the way God would have us respond to each other. And then the middle two, correction and reproof, were as mine has it, rebuking and correcting. These guide our actions. Correction is moral accountability. For when you have stepped away from God's plan for the actions you are to take, and reproof is doctrinal accountability. 
for when you've misstated, misbelieved the truth of his word. Scholars will point out that this is what's called a, a chiastic structure. That he begins and ends with the ideas of feeding the mind, and in the middle are the two ideas of guiding the actions. It's a very Hebraic way of thinking and writing. Paul, being a Jew of Jews, as he calls himself, would have certainly done that. It is meant to express simply that the way that we discern God's will is through Scripture. Because Scripture will guide our understandings of the right ways to think and the right ways to act. And when we live according to those principles, when we apply those principles to our lives, then we better understand who God is. And in understanding who God is, we will then understand what God desires of us and where He wants us to go. Every relationship you've ever had, you understand the person better the longer you're in a relationship with them. Because you've spent time with them, and you've listened to them, and you've walked with them, and you've come to understand them. And our relationship with God is no different. As we spend time in His Word, we begin to understand His mind. We begin to understand His desires and actions. And so, as we undertake Bible study, we need to do so with the right spirit, the right mindset. We need to be, as Audie Murphy was to his commanding officers in the military, we need to be that way to our God and King. Andrew Murray put it this way, a readiness to believe every promise implicitly, to obey every command unhesitantly, to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God is the only true spirit of Bible study. When you read your word, when you read the word that God has given you, what is your goal? Is it obedience? Is it wholeness before God? Is it confidence in where he's leading and what he wants to do? If that's not your goal in Bible study, then you're not doing Bible study correctly. But we become all too familiar with the word, not in the good way that we know it, but in the, in the way that it's become something we take for granted. I've had the privilege over the years to, to travel to many countries. And one of the things that often strikes me in those countries, especially those that would qualify as what we would call third world countries, is their surprise and wonder at just how many Bibles we actually have in the U.S., We go there, and often on the trips I'm on, we'll, we'll distribute Bibles in their language and so forth. And you would think we were giving them bars of gold. 
And then at times I've talked to them, and they say, well, how many Bibles do you have? A couple dozen. What? Yeah, we have whole stores. That you can go in, and there's nothing on the walls but Bibles. And they're amazed. And they're sad because they don't have that. And we take it for granted. And we have the wonderful, amazing Word of God so readily available to us. And yet many of us will go home this afternoon, put it on our table, our desk, not open it again until next Sunday. How can we take something so precious and wonderful for granted? This book contains the very words of the creator of the universe. The one who loves you more than anyone ever will. We should be burying ourselves in this. We should be obsessed with this. Not because it's an idol to be worshipped, but because points to the God who is to be worshipped. Will we spend more time in it? It's a simple question. A simple invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now. God, I thank you for word. I thank you that you haven't left us in darkness. You haven't left us in confusion that you have spoken so clearly to us in so many ways. I pray, God, that you would lay on our hearts ways that we can spend more time in your word. Whether it's listening to it on audio recording or drive or spending time into with it in our house or during our lunch break at work or whatever it is, God, I pray that you would just reveal to us that and, and give us the tools, give us the desire, give us the commitment to do it right, Lord. So that we may know you and make you known. Thank you, God. Praise you for your goodness. We ask that you lead us according to your plan here this morning. In Christ's name, amen.